You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer here in the hosting chair this week. And we've got a full cast of uh, News and Observer crew. Uh, Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, Matthew Adams, and Will Doran are all here at the table. Um, And of course, it's been budget week. Uh, The final budget came out on uh, late Monday night. And uh, since then, we've been uh, combing through all 400 and some pages of uh, the spending uh, plans for the coming fiscal year and uh, found a variety of different uh, things that have uh, sparked controversy as the budget made its way through both the House and Senate this week. It's now on Governor Roy Cooper's desk, and we are eagerly awaiting to see uh, what he does with the budget he calls the most irresponsible budget we've seen in uh, many, many years. Uh, he says he's not necessarily agreed to uh, veto it yet, although I think I would be, we'd all be very surprised um, if he did end up uh, signing the budget rather than uh, vetoing it and sending it back to the legislature for an override vote, uh, which would likely occur sometime next week with the uh, deadline of June 30th looming ahead. Uh, so uh, let's dive into the budget before we get into a few other uh, fun bits of news about uh, milk and uh, Russia. Not not the same story, but two separate stories about uh, milk and Russia this week. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, but let's uh, start out on the, the budget. And I guess the uh, big surprise in the budget was some things that were not in either the House or the Senate uh, budget bills that have already passed, uh, affecting both the governor and the attorney general. Uh, Craig Jarvis, uh, fill us in a little about uh, uh, what impact this budget is going to have on uh, Roy Cooper and Josh Stein, the two Democrats, and uh, how they're reacting. Well, they say it's not a it's not a political decision, but uh, but it was budget priorities uh, when they took a pretty big hit out of the attorney general's office and uh, and also a chunk out of the uh, governor's office. The governor's office, they ended up uh, taking a million dollars just away from away from his budget. They also transferred to the Republican-controlled Department of Public Instruction a uh, education grant program that had been run out of the governor's office. And also a um, uh, – I just forgot what the third thing was. I think it was a uh, – oh, oh, moving the Industrial yeah. Commission to the Republican-controlled uh, um, um, Insurance, insurance, yeah. Not our treasurer. Well, I think it was insurance. Maybe it uh, was the insurance. It was. Uh, yeah. That's Mike Causey, right? Yeah, right. So, yeah, that's yeah. He, he gets control over uh, that exciting branch of state government. Right. The week's been too long. I've already forgotten what I thought I knew. Um, and also, there was a provision that said you've got to get the legislature's approval if you're going to hire outside counsel. Um, that was a kind of the hit on the governor's office. Uh, the attorney general's office was was pretty stunning. It was a ten million dollar cut. Uh, and depending on how you look at it, it's either about a 10% of his budget or much more of the budget because it was pretty selective. It said you, you've got to get rid of these people because there's certain – and there's a certain – the uh, assistant attorney generals, many of them are funded through certain things like Medicaid to look for fraud, and they're, they're sort of encumbered. Uh, you can't touch that, uh, their positions really. But these were general fund-funded positions that are largely – uh, handle criminal appeals for the most part, uh, but the, uh, Stein is saying that that it's somewhere around 125, something like that. Uh, mostly attorneys, people could lose their jobs. So uh, there's some thought that maybe there was such a backlash to that that in the technical corrections bill that'll be changed, but we don't know. It's a 
Yeah, that's been a, an interesting one. And uh, we've heard actually ask dueling explanations for uh, why that happened. Yeah. Tell us a lot different politicians on the Republican side have said about why they cut the AG's office, because it's not really been a consistent answer. No, it hasn't. Uh, I spoke to uh, Harry Brown, Senator Harry Brown, one of the key budget writers. He said it's just, you know, one, that Stein has a lot of money. He's got more than enough They've, his, his, that Department of Justice had grown far more than many legislators had, had even realized. Uh, so it's just he's kind of crying wolf. They're, you know, it's just more uh, – they, they've got plenty of funding. Uh, they they do it if they could, but there's they they want to fund us. Uh, they're increasing the number of assistant district attorneys and deputy court clerks around the state, so the money had to come from somewhere. So and that in itself was sort of controversial. And some Democrats, I think Darren Jackson pointed out that those ADAs uh, were uh, particularly going towards Republican-controlled counties right. as opposed to just sort of across the board. That's true. But then another explanation came from, I think, I'm not sure who we heard it from other than Berger himself, uh, that, you know, Stein has kind of not played ball with them. He's refused to do what they want him to do. He's, you know, kind of fought uh, fought against him on several fronts. And uh, they say he's a wall. The a wall. Yeah, a wall was the term used by uh, Senator Dan Bishop in a Bishop Twitter exchange where he was also uh, saying that media was jihad. But oh, that's yeah, a, that, another story. That's entirely. another story. But uh, you know, so it's not clear. I mean, was it either we wish we could, but we just didn't have the money, or is it kind of somehow kind of punitive? Uh, Harry Brown said, "Oh no, it's not political. Certainly not political." Uh, but uh, I guess that remains to be seen. Do you remember during the Purdue administration where the Senate budget had uh, cuts to the lieutenant governor's budget that, like, took away some of his employees and stopped paying for his cell phone? And uh, <laughs> they eliminated some positions in Purdue's office, and they got rid of two of her um, two of her spokespeople, like by position. Do you remember all that? That, that was before I started oh, okay. covering the beat yeah. full time. So, uh, but yeah, so that just shows you. I mean, it, it, of course, it's political, and they kind of take little jabs at each other. And uh, yeah, I did think I don't think uh, the uh, Walter Dalton cell phone cut went through, and I know that uh, that uh, Purdue could still uh, employ her spokespeople. But um, yeah, they like there's a there's a uh, pattern of uh, uh, cuts um, in some of these budgets. Yeah, and the Republicans over the last few years kind of have been kind of reducing the size of the Attorney General's office anyway. It started by taking all these attorneys who work in the same place, basically, but represent different state agencies and moving them out into the agencies where their fate was kind of unknown in terms of whether uh, they'd continue to be employed or not. So. Yeah, and all of this, I think, uh, somewhat comes as a, a distraction from what the Republicans want the uh, main headlines of this budget to be, which is uh, that they're going to put in tax cuts that will be in 2019 as opposed to uh, the coming year as uh, was initially uh, considered in the House and Senate budgets, raising the standard deduction, lowering the overall uh, personal income tax rate and the corporate income tax rate, uh, and also the, the teacher raises, which the um, headline from uh, the – uh, Senate and House leadership has been that uh, it's a 10% increase over two years. Of course, weighted more heavily to the second year of the, the budget. Uh, it's actually just a 3% raise for the uh, coming year on average, uh, weighted towards uh, more veteran teachers uh, in that plan. But we haven't heard as much about that given the surprises in the budget because obviously the other things we, we knew were sort of coming based on the House and Senate budget, but the cuts to some of these agencies 
uh, showed up for the first time in this final budget and, and weren't part of either the House or the uh, Senate's plan for this. Um, one thing, however, was uh, contemplated a little bit earlier in this session, and that's uh, some changes to uh, state employees who retire health care benefits when they retire, and uh, particularly looking at uh, state employees who haven't been hired yet. Uh, Lynn, you looked into this. Uh, tell us about what the final um, plan was on uh, retiree health care. Well, here's the deal. Um, state employees who are hired um, beginning in 2021, so this is pushed out a few years, will no longer be eligible for health care when they retire. Now, um, people who represent state employees and state retirees, of course, are uh, flabbergasted and unhappy because um, this was not one of the uh, top lines uh, when people were talking about uh, about the budget. Um, but uh, the rationale for this was um, Senate Republicans wanted to limit retiree benefits or future retirees' benefits because of the cost. There is a $42.2 billion unfunded liability in the uh, state employee health plan. And the idea was, well, why do we keep, uh, you know, building this uh, this expense that we can't afford to pay. Um, and uh, the, also one of the arguments is, well, people who retire from private jobs don't have any, any you know, notion that their employer is going to keep paying for their health care after they retire. So this puts the state more in line with, uh, with private employment. Um, the counterargument is that well, there are a lot of state employees who decide to become state employees because they know after retirement that they're between uh, the time they retire and the time they get uh, they qualify for Medicare at 65, their health care will be covered. So they're worried about um, recruitment, uh, especially in some uh, some low-paying jobs, and retention where. Um, where it pays to have people who uh, have a lot of experience in a job. So this has been pushed out to 2020. Uh, Retirees uh, Association and Teachers Association, or NCAE, say that in the time between this becomes law and when uh, when they pass this and and when it actually goes into effect, they're going to try to kill it. so we'll see where it goes from here. In the meantime, of course, there's a study committee to look at, <laughs> at the implication uh, for this change. But uh, but something uh, interesting as, you know, the state looks to um, employment and uh, – and benefits. Yeah, so, so if you're looking for a job with the state, uh, chances are that you're, you, you may want to try to see if you can do that in the next couple of years before this takes effect and uh, future employees don't get quite the same perks when they retire out of the system. Right. All right, thanks, Lynn, for that. Um, also had some uh, news this week on the pre-K front in the budget, um, and that's uh, a situation where uh, we, we've heard a lot of talk about pre-K funding over the course of this budget cycle. Uh, Governor Roy Cooper's budget had some uh, funding for that to try to do away with the wait list. And then there were some uh, competing proposals in the, the House and Senate that uh, had different levels of funding to uh, reduce the wait list and get more kids into pre-K programs. Will, you've looked into this a little bit. Uh, where, where do we stand on pre-K now that the budget's out? 
Yeah, actually, uh, Cooper and the uh, the House Republicans had the exact same plan, um, which I think probably surprised a lot of people, kind of a, a rare moment of bipartisan agreement here in the budget. Um, and they wanted to basically uh, spend around uh, around $12 million next year and $24 million the year after that to just totally get rid of the wait list so that, uh, you know, if, if your child is eligible for uh, free pre-K, which is you know, military families, uh, some like low-income and middle-class families, uh, children with special needs, things like that, um, that you wouldn't get turned away. Last year, there were around 4,700 kids that did get turned away, and um, and even more who probably just didn't even, you know, try and sign up. But in the end, they weren't able to convince the Senate to go along with that plan. The Senate all along had only wanted to spend about um, half the amount of money that uh, the governor and the House did, um, and they, uh, they ended up with a compromise uh, in between the two plans. They're going to get rid of about 75% of that, uh, of that wait list. So, uh, you know, two years from now, there will still be some kids that are getting turned away, but, you know, it'll probably only be around, you know, maybe 1,500 instead of 5,000. So uh, definitely more seats uh, for for kids, and that, I mean, also just that means, you know, more more jobs for uh, pre-K teachers. That's how you get rid of the wait list is by hiring more teachers. Um, so I think a lot of people are uh, are excited about that. Um, there's also a provision. There's the a new uh, the intergovernment council that this budget set up to basically streamline all of the early childhood things that are going on in the state. Because right now you have DPI that handles some things. Health and Human Services that handle some things, and then, you know, different departments within all those different agencies, and it's kind of just a, a clunky mess um, from from what I've heard from people who, who deal with it, um, and there's this new council that's set up to kind of try and streamline that, and both that and the pre-K thing are um, were actually recommendations from a national business group that uh, Jim Goodnight, the SAS CEO, led uh, earlier this year, I think in February, they came out with this report. And I think I think Lynn wrote about that. I did write about that. Um, and it it appears that the legislature uh, listened to Mr. Goodnight and all of his business friends. Yeah, he's, and a, he's a powerful dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kids, if you want pre-K, talk to Jim Goodnight. Yes. <laughs> yes, the powerful children yeah. lobby. Yeah, call your CEOs. <laughs> So that's that on the uh, early child care front. Yeah, and uh, speaking of kids and education, uh, Matthew, you wrote a little bit this week about uh, some of the uh, final solutions on uh, governor's school and uh, teaching fellows in the budget. Tell us a little about where, where that stands after uh, a lot of discussion about those topics this year. Yeah, so governor's school, um, you know, it's it just started this past Sunday on Father's Day, um, and there was some, you know, concern, you know, even though people at governor's school, they weren't vocal about it when school was starting up, but they were concerned about what was happening. Um, and there was concern um, that the 800000 that they have been receiving in the Senate's uh, version of the budget, they were proposing to cut it and give it to some other um, education programs. Um, the House, on the other hand, was still saying, no, you keep your 800000 um, but the governor's school, well, they liked what the governor was proposing and that they would, he was proposing to provide $1.2 million um, in funding. Now, what what is being proposed in the budget right now is only $800,000. Um, they're not totally pleased about that. Uh, governor's school feels like that they need more funding. They only consider that a partial funding. 
um, because right now with that 800,000, 800,000, excuse me, they're only able to provide um, the services to about 670 students, which in the past they were able to get 800 or more students. Um, So for them, they're pleased with at least being in the budget right now, um, but they're still worried that, you know, over the next few years that they're still just going to be in this continual cycle of arguing for more funds, which maybe they won't ever see. Um, In regards to the teaching fellows, that seems pretty certain that that's going to go through. Um, It is in the budget uh, for this year. A little over four and a half million is provided for the program and then an additional six million the following year. Um, And which in North Carolina, that's, you know, people have talked about teacher shortages for some time and, and teaching fellows has been a way to get potential teachers in the classroom earlier and also kind of spark some interest and try to fill some of those Yeah, and it's needs. been cut for the last couple of years. Uh, it's been inactive, but now coming back yeah. in a slightly different form. Yeah, it's coming back in a slightly different form. You know, when it was here previously, it was kind of trying to address teachers across the field. Um, but once it was cut in 2011 and then the program officially ended 2015, um, one of the things that this addresses, particularly our STEM and special education, um, Craig Horn, who authored the House version of that bill, um, well, he was in the General Assembly in 2011 when they decided to cut it. And, and he talked about in his own district in Weddington some of the um, shortages in STEM and science. I think in the high school there, he said that they had, you know, biology teachers. They they couldn't fill and they had substitutes through the fall semester um and one of the uh deans um the dean over at nc state well she talked about that you know here in central north carolina in the triangle area well there were over 400 vacancies and just starting the last school year and she said you know if it's already hard to fill here where the Triangle area is a friendly education area. Yeah, it's a place people want to live as opposed to some of the more outlying counties right, that have exactly. a harder time and lower salaries to, to yeah, compete folks. exactly. So so for them to see this end up and, you know, to be active again, you know, it's a start. But, of course, there are those in the education sector who feel like, well, we need to address English and some of the other fundamentals yeah. of education. But I, But for now... Everybody is very pleased with getting this on the table and having a focus again on some of the STEM. And yeah, and that's uh, even outside of teaching fellows is a big aspect of this budget. There's a another program uh, that uh, this budget puts out there on teacher salaries for beginning teachers yeah. uh, that uh, would sort of try to attract some highly qualified teachers uh, out of uh, right out of school to go to some of these fields. So I think you'd get a higher starting salary if you are a what's termed highly qualified uh, teaching program graduate who's got a high GPA, has scored mm-hmm. really well on the a sort of entry-level test, um, and then agreed to uh, either teach in STEM or special ed and or teach in a low-performing school district. Um, yeah. 
So that's in there as well as another effort to uh, keep the same thing. So we'll move on from uh, budget now. I think that's a, enough on the budget. Uh, and like I say, we'll uh, be looking out for what the governor does and then probably a, an override vote next week if he, he does indeed uh, follow through with his indications that he's likely to veto this plan. Uh, of course, some of the question is the timing. If he waits a few days, uh, it may be running up close to the June 30th deadline, and uh, in which case the legislature would have to stick around a little longer than they planned. They're hoping to adjourn next week. Um, and they would have to uh, pass a temporary budget to, to get through the following days. I think the governor gets 10 days to uh, sign or, or veto a bill, and uh, this bill is no exception to that. So jumping ahead uh, to some other places, uh, there's North Carolina, of course, not the only uh, hotbed of uh, political news uh, this week. Uh, Washington has been uh, busy, too, um, and uh, Will Doran has been keeping up with our U.S. Senator Richard Burr, who's uh, uh, still in the heat of the Russia investigation up there, made a statement this week about uh, past Russian meddling in our elections. Will, tell us about what he said and, and what the facts behind it were. Well, sure, and I'll try and be brief because I'm sure our listeners want to get onto the burgeoning milk scandal oh, yeah, here we, in North Carolina. We want to save time to talk about milk. <laughs> milk. <laughs> we, do, we do got milk on this, uh, this uh, podcast this week. If you want it. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, um, Richard Burr obviously uh, been at really kind of the, the center of the national news universe. He's leading probably the, the most high-profile investigation into the links or any possible links, I should say, between uh, – the Russian government and the Donald Trump uh, campaign, and uh, we uh, we fact checked him last week. Uh, our listeners will remember talking about the transparency of his investigation. Uh, that was true; it has been pretty transparent. Um, this week, we looked into something he said that basically this is not the first time that Russia has been involved in our elections. That you know maybe you know everything that happened in 2016 shouldn't have necessarily come as a surprise to to folks. And I talked to a few half a dozen historians and you know foreign relations experts, and I read a uh, actually a declassified CIA briefing that Burr's office sent me, and none of it really backed up that claim. Um, the The Russian government, as in the post Cold War version, has you know they've kind of you know used their state-run TV to kind of cast doubts on the validity of U.S. elections before, but no one can ever point to anything like what happened in 2016 when you had, you know, Russian military units hacking into the voting systems of states like North Carolina um, with some of the software here. Um, for the record, they don't think any votes were actually changed, but, you know, the hack did occur. Um, and, you know, massive armies of social media trolls being paid paid by the Kremlin. That's yeah. that's never really happened before. Social media trolls weren't big in the Cold War era. Right, you're right. And, and that's part of it, too, is, you know, there there were there was no voting software to hack in the Cold War because, you know, it didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, but post-Cold War in the in the past, you know, six or seven elections, pre- presidential elections, how many we've had since then, uh, there hasn't been anything on the scale of 2016. If you go back to basically the 60s and the 70s, there were a few instances of the Russian government either trying to um, pay U.S. candidates under the table to, you know, help secretly fund their campaigns, and then those candidates saying obviously no and, you know, reporting it to the proper intelligence agencies. Um, Adlai Stevenson and Hubert Humphrey were two of uh, two of those for people who, who remember the politics of the 60s. And then uh, in the 70s was maybe my favorite Soviet caper, 
just seems really silly in hindsight. They uh, they were scared of this guy named Scoop Jackson, who was a That's senator. That's a great name. Right. <laughs> and he was a Democrat, um, pretty high profile, and uh, they thought that he was going to basically win the presidency in the wake of Nixon having to resign in disgrace. Uh, they figured, you know, people weren't going to elect a Republican after the whole Nixon thing. Um, and they were scared of Scoop, uh, so they decided to... Uh, forge a bunch of uh, FBI paperwork that made it seem as if he was a secret member of a gay sex club. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> the best kind of sex club. <laughs> and I guess that was really, you know, the uh, maybe the, the first modern instance of fake news because they got all these forged FBI reports and sent them to newspapers all around the country um, trying to basically, uh, you know, convince uh you know editorial boards not to endorse this guy because he was in the closet or something like that i don't i don't think there is you know any, anything to that obviously it was just tricky spy games but um but that was that was the last that anyone publicly knows of or has acknowledged and that was in 1976 so you have to wait another 40 years until you see uh any you know any involvement by the russians trying to undermine a specific candidate like they did with uh, Hillary Clinton or help a specific candidate like they did with Trump. So uh, that's the long way of saying that we gave Burr's claim a half-true right. on our PolitiFact rating. Half-true for Richard Burr in PolitiFact this week. Thanks for that, Will. And uh, I want to get to the topic everyone's been waiting for, milk. Is it safe? Are there nasty things in it? Uh, what's the situation with that, Lynn? Where do we stand on uh, the safety of our milk here in North Carolina? Well, um you know, this all boils down to this giant milk fight, boils down to uh, Troxler, Steve Troxler, our uh, agriculture commissioner versus uh, state auditor Beth Wood, who did an audit of um, inspection reports of dairies and all of the other businesses that uh, transport and package milk. Uh, and she said that uh, the state inspectors aren't exactly rigorous in um, in their inspections and in that they will seek to avoid um, taking actions during their inspections that would trigger a uh, an entity's um, permit from being suspended. And there are various ways of doing this, but she found, you know, or her auditors found hundreds of instances where, um, you know, I guess you would say the uh, the inspectors avoided, um, you know, noting violations uh, of, that related to sanitary conditions. Um, she says that, well, it, this puts uh, raises questions about uh, the quality and cleanliness of the milk, and uh, she uh, said she didn't feel exactly good about the grade A milk she's drinking. Um, Steve Troxler says uh, she doesn't know what she's talking about, doesn't know about inspections, and the milk is fine. Um, so, so that's where we are. They're they're in the middle of uh, battling. Um, press conferences at this point. Uh, in the meantime, um, you know, the dairy producers say, well, they are working with the inspectors to make sure quality um, is maintained. And even after the, uh, the cows are milked, there are other steps in the process where the milk is checked. So uh, they maintain that, you know, there's, there's nothing to worry about with the milk. Yeah, so I guess we're going to continue to see some back and forth uh, in the next couple of days between 
uh, Troxler and Wood. I, I wonder if milk is going to become a, a partisan beverage that the uh, Republican ag commissioner says it's good, drink more of it, state beverage, and uh, the Democrat who runs the state auditor's office is uh, a little bit more wary about uh, the quality of our milk. Yeah, well, you know, everything else is a partisan issue. Why yeah, why not milk too? Yeah. Well, or, this kind of sheds a weird light on the milk chugging contest. Yeah, the, the legislature, legislature has this annual milk chugging contest <laughs> and you, you have to wonder if they're uh maybe that's going to become partisan that the democrats well, next want to year take everybody partner. sends an intern yeah <laughs> yeah that's the challenge is that <laughs> only the, the teams include interns uh instead of lawmakers and that's the, right. we'll, we'll see how many interns show up uh next year when they they have the milk chugging contest and whether there's a market for out-of-state milk i think if people don't trust north carolina's milk to, well milk's the state drink how yeah. you know I think it's important for people to trust the state drink. That's true, yeah. And I honestly have no idea. You know, I, I buy, like, store-brand milk, and I couldn't tell you if it's coming from North Carolina or is it being shipped in from, you know, wherever Kroger or Food Line is based out of. So, anyways, uh, interesting issue on, on milk and uh, certainly uh, makes people a little wary, uh, regardless of who ends up uh, in the right on, on this uh, argument. So uh, that'll do it for our main news segment. Stay tuned. We will be back in just a moment with Headliners of the Week. Social Security believes the integrity of our programs is important. To protect the people we serve and the services we offer, we use many tools to identify, prevent, and stop fraud. We identify fraud by using tools that predict the chance of fraud happening. We also have stiff penalties that discourage people from committing fraud. Social Security has zero tolerance for fraud, and so should you. If you suspect someone is committing Social Security fraud, report it online at http oigssagov report or call the Social Security Fraud Hotline at 1-800-269-0271. Welcome back to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer and the NC Insider. It's time, of course, for everyone's favorite segment, Headliners of the Week, where we uh, go over the uh, top folks in the news this week and battle it out for the uh, headliner, coveted headliner spot here. Uh, we're going to start off this week with uh, Lynn Bonner. Lynn, who's your headliner? My headliner is uh, Megan Faircloth, a superstar student from Wake County who uh, overcame homelessness and uh, graduated at the top of her high school class and is going to Stanford uh, next year, uh, has been celebrated nationally um, in the last month or so. But here's a politi- the political connection. Uh, Roy Cooper invited her and her family to the executive mansion this week and gave her an award. So, um, so I'm going to uh, go for Megan Faircloth. That's my headliner. Megan Faircloth, perhaps the uh, most inspiring person uh, in in the news this week in North Carolina and getting some uh, much-deserved appreciation from our governor. Uh, Up next, we've got Craig Jarvis. Craig, who's your headliner of the week? Senator Dan Bishop from down Charlotte Way. He uh, <clears throat> once I've never again, heard of him. What did he do this oh, week? Oh, well, he's done a couple <laughs> things. This, he has a knack for uh, he's, he's kind of developed a reputation as sort of incendiary when it comes to the news media. He believes, you know, he's, on, he's, on, he's part of that agenda. The, the, the news media is the enemy. He uh, tweeted, or maybe it was a series of tweets uh, earlier this week, basically saying the News and Observer, CNN, and the Associated Press were all examples of jihadi journalism. So uh, nice alliteration there. Uh, I'm a little torn about this. I mean, I, I, I think it's unseemly for reporters to be complaining if somebody calls them names. I mean, it, it just goes with the territory. It's to be expected. But um, in this case, you know, the legislators and, and people in state government can can hate us or they can go out of their way to say 
this is what I think you got wrong, or here's why I think we have a problem, and we can have a dialogue, and sometimes that's pretty helpful. There's some people who just aren't ever going to go that way, and uh, uh, Bishop, who was one of the architects of the uh, notorious HB2 uh, law from anti-LGBT protection law, uh, has hated the press ever since the, their coverage of that bill, calling it, basically saying we were liars. So uh, anyway, he uh, he struck up quite a bit of a Twitter storm himself this week uh, with the jihadi journalism comment. Yeah, certainly a, a far cry from saying a story is biased, which seemed to be what he was referring to, uh, his critique being on some of the stories that he was posting this on to uh, suggesting that uh, journalists are actually terrorists and, and perhaps we're, we're just a step away from our, our friends in ISIS um, in, in these matters. So yeah, it was a, there were a number of people who, they, who, that, rubbed, who that rubbed them the wrong way. Apparently, uh, uh, Nick Auctioner, a TV reporter from down in the Charlotte Way, his father apparently uh, was uh, killed in action. Yeah, someone pointed that out that it was sort of unseemly to, to yeah, be making to, that claim to Nick, given his yeah, family history. Yeah. And then uh, I think was it Representative Greer Martin, who's in the Army Reserves, I think. Uh, well, he's directed the comment to you, I think, yeah. Colin, saying, uh, I've, I've met some jihadis and you just don't uh, add up. Yeah. No, no terrorist cell is going to be recruiting me anytime soon. I would not be a, uh, a top pick for them for uh, quite a number of reasons. But anyway, Dan Bishop in the hat. Uh, and we should note that uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger did issue a statement about Bishop's uh, jihad uh, media comments uh, saying that he would have used a different choice of words, but uh, sympathized with some of the concerns about uh, liberal bias in the state's media, uh, and also raised some concerns about uh, people calling out uh, Reverend William Barber of the NAACP for some incendiary language he's used to describe Republicans. Never said that they were jihadi, but did say that they were uh, I believe the term he used were white, uh, right-wing extremists or something to that effect uh, in some of his critiques recently. So that was sort of the, the fallout from Bishop's uh, remarks last week. And uh, next in the headliner hat, we've got uh, Matthew Adams. Matthew, what's you, what do you got for us this week? So uh, the House, David, uh, David Lewis it was in the House, they uh, brought up this bill that is a coyote bounty, essentially. Um, one of the, under this program, uh, it, it only... Pr- pertains to one county uh, it was a rich yeah, richmond county. county down by the south carolina border yeah it's only for this county but it would be able to capture neuter and mark coyotes now it doesn't seem like they're wanting to kill coyotes but it seems like that's the line that they're targeting here. yeah the idea is controlling the population there yeah yeah so um and then of course within this discussion um one of the representatives brought up oh well would we be able to do this essentially with uh, members of the General Assembly, sterilize them and release Lewis, them with a target on yes, the back? And- yes. Now, Lewis, now Lewis said, no, my wife has those marks. So. Yeah. First time someone's uh, referred to their uh, vasectomy on the House floor, at least to my knowledge. Yeah. So uh, please don't make me fact checking on that. <laughs> For some reason, that was this whole bill was a joke magnet. I mean, the debate began. I didn't catch who it was that said it, but basically asked the two bill sponsors, "What bar were you in when you dreamed this up?" <laughs> yeah, and then lots of Roadrunner uh, Looney Tunes jokes made. Of course, uh, Wiley Coyote yeah. comes to mind when you think about uh, targeting coyotes. So that's. Yeah. Um, uh, made for a fun debate um, and uh, an interesting one uh, on that. The bill is passed. So there is now a law. And uh, uh, if you're looking for fun uh, yep. with coyote hunting, uh, Richmond County is definitely the place from the sound of it. All right. Thanks for that, Matthew. And last but not least, Will Doran, who's your headliner? 
Well, I'm going to go with myself uh, this week. I know, you oh, know, reporters choice. aren't supposed to be, you know, making the news, but actually today is my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. And, you know, technically we are supposed to get our birthdays off from work, but due to my dedication to Domecast and my devotion to our dear listeners, uh, I am here <laughs> recording uh, for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a little sick of this already. Get out of here. <laughs> So there you go. All right. Uh, Will Doran in the hat for headliner of the week uh, for having a birthday today and coming to Domecast anyway rather than uh, out at a bar enjoying some uh, craft beers to review for your other roles here at the paper. Uh, And we've also got uh, Coyotes in the hat for their um, bounty program coming up in the house. Um, Got Dan Bishop for his jihadi media comment and Megan Faircloth for her inspiring uh, story at high school graduation uh, amid many obstacles. Um, and out of that, as is, is much as I like you, Will, um, <laughs> your, your birthday didn't actually show up in the paper, which usually is a having a headline is a requirement for a headliner. Um, as we much can as, fix that. Yeah, I enjoyed the Coyotes. That was a good one since I, I wrote that story. Um, but overall, uh, I think we have to take the inspiring story this week amid all the other uh, crazy headlines. And uh, Megan Faircloth is our headline of the week. Uh, congrats to, to Lynn for nominating her. And uh, that'll about do it for this week. Uh, I'm Colin Campbell of The Insider and The News and Observer here with Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, Matthew Adams, and Will Dorn. Thanks so much for listening to us, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.